Hello and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm just really hanging around for Taco Tuesday at this point. <laughs> I mean, we do eat tacos literally every time I come to Philadelphia, but it is never a Tuesday. Um, and I'm Valerie Hoagland. And Glenn, yeah, I feel like we've talked about this a lot because it's a constant problem in my life. But I have this thing where like I'm singing in the shower and then like men just show up outside my apartment. Yeah, it might might help if you uh, if you drew the curtains over the window. I should take measures to to protect the people of of my good neighborhood. So thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> well, as always, together we run a speakeasy in the Jeffries Tubes. We've actually got some news and a thank you that I want to lead off with tonight. I'm going to be making an appearance at a con where I'll be on a Star Trek Discovery panel. And this is going to be PhilCon, the, the Philadelphia SF Con, which is the, the longest running con in the world, in fact. So if you live nearby, uh, come check that out. That's next weekend. But I also want to say that Brandon and I are doing a live show of the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast at the con as well. And we needed more equipment in order to do that. And we were only able to get that equipment because of our patrons. So we wanted to say a huge thanks to those of you who support us on Patreon. Uh, and I do hope that we'll be able to use that equipment someday for Valerie and I to be able to do a live show at a con together as well. Yeah, I totally want to echo the thanks. This is so exciting that, uh, you know, the brand gets to be a part of this and that you guys got to be a part of helping us do that. And I am very bummed to be missing PhilCon, to be missing Glenn on stage, and, you know, a little upset that Glenn gets to talk about, you know, PTSD in Star Trek Discovery without his resident mental health expert by his side. But unfortunately, I work that day. It's so true. All of the things that are on the uh, the platform for the panel to be talking about are your areas of expertise. So I'm just going to be up there, I don't know, making drinks for the other panelists or something. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you could just be texting me under the table <laughs> um, while it's happening. I'm sure no one will notice. I'll just say it's my universal translator. It'll be fine. Well, anyway, I hope you guys are going to be able to be a presence there, even though I can't be. But more on topic today, we are talking about the second Short Treks episode, Calypso. This episode was written by Michael Chabon from a story by him and by Sean Cochran, and it was directed by Olatunde Onsen Sanmi. And we talked last time about how we had looked at this great photograph of Michael Chabon and Patrick Stewart hanging out in the writer's room for the new Patrick Stewart Star Trek show that's going to you know, show up, uh, I don't know, some sometime in the near future. But because I work so hard to not be spoiled about anything, I had no idea he was writing this episode. And Sean Cochran, of course, is also the the, the writer behind Despite Yourself, which was the, the first Mirror Universe episode in the first season of Discovery, which remained my favorite episode, I think, for the whole the whole season. So uh, and, and I thought they did a great job here. I really, really loved this episode. One thing that really honestly struck me the most about this episode was like, who would have ever predicted that my classics degree would come in as handy as it comes in for us doing this show? Right. I think I use more Greek and Latin when we're talking Star Trek than I do when I'm actually teaching my classes on Greek and Roman history. <laughs> It just doesn't quit. Like, I have these flashbacks to being told that classics was a very impractical degree. And I'm like, oh, well, it's very practical now that I get to use it all the time on my Star Trek podcast. But it is just kind of amazing how, you know, we're just two best friends who really love Star Trek and also happen to be historians of a period where Greco-Roman culture was pretty important. And those just like happen to be two facts about us. And it really has augmented our ability to to look at this new show. I think it is pretty remarkable how how much it's been intersecting. I would actually I think it would be fun to do a comparison with the original series and TNG, which both also draw a lot on classical illusions and actually just see if episode for episode, if if Discovery is doing more of it than they are. And maybe even, I don't know, minute for minute, because my, my money is that Discovery is. I really feel like these writers uh, are all classics majors. Yeah, but to contradict my own argument, every time we cover a randomly generated episode of some other Star Trek show for our Patreon account, somehow 
either Italian literature, medieval history, or classics becomes relevant. So it could just be that when we're not recording about it, we don't notice as much. Um, and it's really just there all the time. Of course, there's so much obsession with the Roman Empire in Star Trek in general. Oh, yeah. And, and bread and circuses, which is, is something I can't wait for the uh, the random episode generator to give to us. <laughs> but I think before we can actually get around to talking about the Star Trek episode in which they go visit the Roman Empire in space, uh, we need to talk about some Homeric literature in this episode. Yeah, so this is my my long rambly intro, um, alluding to the fact that this title tells us a lot about where where the inspiration for the plot of this short trek came from. So when I heard the word Calypso, uh, and I'm sure it's the case for you as well, Glenn, but maybe not for all of our listeners, I immediately kind of had an idea of what might be going on. Right. Calypso is an extremely important character in the Odyssey. She's a, a goddess. She has an island uh, in the in the Mediterranean, and she keeps Odysseus prisoner as her lover uh, against his will for seven years before finally sending him home to be reunited with his wife Penelope and his his son Telemachus. Uh, this is part of how the Odyssey opens. And so, yes, going into this story, and especially really even the very first scenes that we get, even just the very first frames that we get in this episode, it was very clear that we were going to get a Star Trek retelling of that story. Yes, from the very beginning, we see someone in distress who is stuck. And a lot of the film is about them being stuck. But from the title, I know that this is going to be about getting home, about getting back. So that's what Calypso kind of told me. I think as as we get there, some interesting differences between the story in the Odyssey and the story as it is told here will come out, particularly kind of the impetus for his eventual return home. So that's something that I would love to talk about. And hopefully, Glenn, we can read a little bit of the Odyssey together. <laughs> yeah, I've got my copy right next to me. So I think this will be a lot of fun as we're going through uh, to, to point out where the comparisons, where the parallels are, but then also talk about the differences. But we'll also, you know, of course, we'll talk about this episode uh, on, on its own and in its own rights and its own merits as well. So let, let's get into the scene by scene now. And this episode starts, as I think every good episode of television should start, with Betty Boop. <laughs> yeah. Um actually that is the one connection I haven't investigated like um either on the internet or in in my mind. Um I wonder if this particular if, if there is something to the choice of Betty Boop here. It comes up later that this this episode of Betty Boop that he is watching is a cartoon retelling of the the Snow White story. So I don't know if there's some kind of connection there with, uh, you know, having gone into a coma from a poison apple and needing to be rescued by someone who's going to be your lover, but maybe might have been the thematic connection, but that's all I've got. Otherwise, it was not clear to me either. No, I think that's pretty solid when you, when you say it so clearly and just like that. That sounds, it kind of hits the nail on the head. And one thing that I think this episode does is hit a lot of nails on the head. Yeah, it might be a little bonk bonk on the head, in fact. Well, we've been dancing around the fact that there's a guy in a small spaceship who is watching these clips of Betty Boop. Right, there's a guy in a spaceship. Oops, forgot to say that. And and he's not doing well. His uh, life signs are at critical levels. We, we zoom out and we realize that, yes, he's in this small spaceship. And the small spaceship is floating by Discovery, like over the top of Discovery. A very, very cool, very beautiful shot. And right when the ship gets to the perfect frame for us to see USS Discovery upside down at the top of our screen, some tractor beams engage to to stop this ship as kind of a, a rescue mission, it seems. There's a lot here in the opening of the short trek to disorient us, which I'm I'm gonna guess is about him being disoriented um, as well and some sort of reflection of that. But we are um, at weird angles. We're upside down and then we're not upside down. Um, we have the Betty Boop cutting in and out. We have the show cutting in and out. There's some just completely blank screen moments. So it's definitely, you know, spooky, scary and, and disorienting. 
Well, I certainly found all of these images pretty disorienting at the beginning as well. But fortunately, we, we get rid of that. We dispense with that pretty quickly. And and the guy, he wakes up in sick bay. He's naked. He's all alone. The the lights are off. It's, it's all very creepy. And what's even creepier is that the computer is watching him through a monitor uh, to check checking out his, his cool tattoo of this owl on his back. And it was a cool tattoo. I definitely had some tattoo envy. Oh, yeah, you're going to have that on your back, I'd say, within five years. Oh, 48 hours. I've already made an appointment. <laughs> you know, if, if, the, if the nail being hit on the head wasn't already being hit enough, which is just a terrible sentence, I apologize. You know, something else, once we have this, this computer, this, this artificial intelligence interacting in the show, something else that becomes really apparent is the connection, I think anyway, between Calypso, the Odyssey, and 2001, a space odyssey. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. The, the, the way that they show this monitor is like the eye of hell from 2001 exactly. Space Odyssey. I, I actually hadn't noticed that. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself. That's a brilliant observation. <laughs> yeah, there's just Odyssey everywhere. <laughs> Odyssey here, Odyssey there. Wow, that just went completely by me. That's an amazing catch. What I thought you were going to point out was that the owl is actually something that is also important in the Odyssey because the owl is one of the symbols of Athena, who is the Greek goddess who is Odysseus's principal helper uh, in his journey home. Wow, you know, I was going to bring up Athena later, but uh, but no, you're you're totally right. Um, and this is, you know, the experience of talking about this with you is just discovering how detail oriented these discovery like short tracks full episodes are, you know, like, they've always really kind of done their homework in very subtle, but very accurate ways. We're going to get another one of these details right now that I didn't notice until after I'd even taken all my notes and watched it multiple times. It didn't occur to me until I was actually talking about the episode with my wife about 10 minutes before we actually got on to do this episode <laughs> tonight. Uh, but let, let's get there in due time. So this guy is investigating sickbay because he doesn't know what's going on and he's still naked, still alone. It's still dark. It's still creepy. He finds something that he can use as a weapon, which seems like a pretty good first step. And then pretty scarily, the, the computer turns on all the stuff, I guess, is the way I would describe what happens, uh, <laughs> and shows him a drawer with PJs in it. These, unfortunately, are not the cool burgundy PJs that we that we fell in love with. Uh, that's a real shame. It is. It is a real shame. And, and there's no no beautiful man for him to brush his teeth next to, which is which is another shame. But I can move past it. Well, that might be OK, because this actor was beautiful enough for four or five beautiful people, I think. I know, right? It's a little like, all right, you don't get to have it all. Yeah, I've, I've been to the gym four times today. <laughs> so now finally, the, the computer talks, but she has a smooth Oxfordshire accent and a brand new voice. This is not the Discovery computer that we've come to know. So this is disorienting. And I want to know what you have to say about that. But I do want to point out the thing that she says here, which is the thing that I hadn't remembered was an important uh, allusion to the Odyssey, which is she says that she has healed him except for one scar that seemed to be important to him. Uh, I had forgotten that, of course, a scar that Odysseus has had all of his life is how he proves to his wife Penelope that he is actually who he says he is after they haven't seen each other in 20 years when he does eventually get home. So, of course, that's what he's going to do when he gets home eventually. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. The the illusions, you know, in, in such a short episode, everything is so neatly packed and tightly wrapped up, which is pretty impressive, especially for like how little dialogue is actually there. And I always think it is kind of fun how easy it can be to miss these connections, like that they are put into the show with such subtlety that you can find them if you're looking, but otherwise you're just watching a fun space thing. I was completely surprised actually how long my notes were uh, when I did my second watch because there is in fact so little talking in the episode, but the visuals do such an amazing job of telling this story. We're really three and a half minutes into this story before we actually get two characters even speaking to each other in this scene at this point. Completely. And we say it every single time, but here I think it is really worth pointing out again, this was beautiful. This episode was visually stunning, every second of it. 
Yeah, this absolutely rivals the uh, the Caron, the 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 Mirror Universe uh, uh, Terran Empire flagship that looked like an Art Deco Gothic cathedral. But the way that they've lit Discovery here and walk uh, this guy, we'll just keep calling him this guy for now. Walk this guy through the ship with the the lighting uh, and the the visuals through the windows was absolutely gorgeous. I th- and I thought they were filming these short treks around the filming of the regular Discovery episodes, and so that they were going to have kind of of bottle episodes here where they weren't going to have access necessarily to all of the sets, but they seem to have their run of the whole ship to tell this story. They do, though I will say that, you know, the mess hall plays a big role again. Um, So I I think something might be going on with having more time to spend in the mess hall than other parts of the set, which I was thinking about your comments on Runaway and chuckling to myself when we spent so much time in the mess hall. But yeah, we do get to be on the bridge. We get to be um, in the corridors. Uh, One thing, though, I just totally forgot to mention in the beginning when he is being pulled into the ship, when we see him floating through space, is it raining can it rain in space? Did you notice this? Yeah, I mean, there was some kind of actual rain and lightning thunderstorm happening in space, which maybe is something that can happen in space. But I think we've pretty well established on this show that neither you nor I should be answering or even really asking those types of questions. Yeah, not to mention if we started doing that, then we'd have to, you know, point out a whole host of other problems with uh, all Trek ever. So better to leave it. But I was like, huh, is it raining in space? Where were we? <laughs> right. Well, let's let's get back to this conversation between this guy and this strange new Oxfordshire computer. She introduces herself as Zora, and he says that his name is Quarrel, but she calls him a liar. And we are going to get two more beats on this liar business. But at this point, Valerie, what did you think was going on with the not regular computer voice? It's not until a little bit into into the episode um, that that she reveals kind of who she is. I was definitely confused. It was unsettling to me that it was a different voice on top of the fact that the computer on Discovery is already, you know, a different voice from the computer we're, we're used to hearing. Wasn't quite sure why she was British. And after I closed out the episode, I think what I decided on, what I sat with was the fact of how alluring her voice is. It's pleasant and it draws you in and it's it's almost like magical in a way. Does that make sense? It definitely sounds like the voice of a seductive, sultry Greek goddess, right? I think that's what I'm saying is like you're drawn into it. It's like a little bit of a lullaby and you just find yourself swaying and you don't know why and all of a sudden you're really engrossed, which is, you know, Again, nail head. At this point, Zora takes this guy, and I'm going to keep calling him this guy till we get a better name for him, uh, takes him to the galley. And here we get uh, some real plot explanation. Uh, Zora says that she can't repair his escape pod, the Betty Boop escape pod. And he asks then how he will get home. And, and Zora doesn't answer this question. She says nothing in response to it. Uh, We then get to him eating some food and Zora says that chef is away and it's been ages since we had a resupply of foodstuffs. Uh, The whole crew is away at present. So that's, that's real creepy that the whole crew is gone. But I really liked this confirmation that there's a chef on Discovery like there is on Enterprise. I know. I was really struck by that. Is that true? I thought it was all replicated. I mean, they definitely go to replicators and order things. And we haven't seen a chef character yet. And I really don't think that anyone has actually mentioned chef on the show. But I hope that this is a sign of things to come. But it also could be part of, you know, the trick, the the enchantment, I think, which is there's the word that I really wanted to say about about the voice of the computer. It's enchanting. Um, it's the perfect word for it to, you know, kind of normalize it like, oh, haha, you know, the chef's not here, but but here's some food. I hope it's OK anyway. Like it just could be fabricated to, to kind of like normalize the situation and humanize the situation. And maybe there never actually was a chef. Oh, that's a really great idea. I mean, that could absolutely be true. And and of course, magic food, which is essentially what this is, is one of the, the chief elements of any kind of uh, supernatural seductress or any kind of uh, enchanting seductress is to use the magic food to lure you in, which is precisely what's happening here. So yeah, I think she might she might just be lying to him a little bit to win his confidence or not win his confidence, but to, to make him less likely to think that something 
creepy and strange is going on here. Yeah, more comfortable, uh, more settled, more relatable, those kinds of things. And, and it works. Right. He he says that he's lonely and bored after a month in space. And he asks whoever this voice is to come have lunch with him. And she says, oh, dear, you thought I was alive? And of course, we, we have known from the start that this is the computer because we're getting you know special advantage. We get the hell 9000 creepy eye thing that let, clues us into that from the start. But I think it's really important that she says alive here rather than person. He, she doesn't say, oh, you thought I was a person. I think this is going to be important later. Oh, I'm excited about that because I'm thinking, obviously, of the doctor from Voyager um, when I start to learn more information about her. So excited for that part. Right. The doctor was completely in my mind here, too. I was really clued into the significance of that word because it really hasn't been that long since we recorded Latent Image as a, as a bonus episode over the summer. And I think that this episode is doing a little bit of what that one it was doing as well. So we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Uh, for now, we get some more information about what is going on in this story. So this guy, his name is not actually Quarrel, which Zora already indicated. But where he comes from, people just don't go around telling their true names to other people. And so he goes by craft. And here Zora says, because you're so crafty, yeah, I mean, like, if she could, like, you know, tilt her head and touch his arm, like, it really like, couldn't get any more obvious, the flirtation. <laughs> right. And of course, crafty is the number one adjective that is used to describe Odysseus throughout both the Iliad and the Odyssey. So here, again, this is this is a joke. It's a pun, but it is also calling our attention to the fact that this is the story of Odysseus and Calypso, and that Zora is going to, at some point, want to keep this character here to be her lover, right? That seems to be what's what's happening here with the flirtiness. Yeah, so listeners who, who might be familiar with other pieces of kind of epic literature might be used to these Homeric epithets, which are these little adjectives that get repeated uh, right before a character's name to describe that character a lot of the time that they get brought up. So like pious Aeneas or swift-footed Achilles. Um, and so, yeah, that's what's being alluded to here. And there's another allusion here, too. Zora wants to talk a little bit more about Kraft's real cool owl tattoo. She can tell from this owl that he's from the planet Alcor 4 because the owl on his back, the owl in this tattoo, is a cyclops owl, uh, which is real cool all by itself. Like, does this owl have just one eye? Uh, but of course, the Cyclops is from the Odyssey. Now, I miss the Cyclops thing, but the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, I mean, there's one illusion literally every 45 seconds. So that we were going to miss some. I mean, it was going to happen. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it. I would think I was more focused on, oh, alcohol 4. Have I heard about that before? Is that like a thing that I have in my memory, alpha memory? And I was distracted from the other part of it. But you're totally right. Well, I've got one more for you here as well. The name Zora is the Slavic word for dawn. And dawn, of course, is extremely important in the Odyssey as well. In fact, dawn gets her own Homeric epithet, rosy-fingered dawn. And so I thought, I thought that was neat as well. When I heard Zora, I was thinking more about the fish people from the Legend of Zelda franchise, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think that was what they were getting at. But, you know, it was on my mind. It's always on your mind. And in fact, Zelda is the back tattoo that you have. Yes, but n not a Cyclops, Zora, unfortunately, or any Cyclops-related Zelda <laughs> tattoo. But uh, but yes, we always talk about your tattoos, Glenn. But uh, but yeah, this is where part of my nerddom comes in as well. So so that was on my mind and on my back. We're going to get a little bit more about who Kraft is here. We, we learned that he's been a soldier in a war, and he, he characterizes himself as a reluctant soldier, and that recently he'd been a prisoner of some people called the Vidraish, and that's who he's escaping from. And the, the Betty Boop business in the escape pod was because the Vidraish like relics from the long ago. And because he's crafty, because he is wily Odysseus, Craft uh, has figured out that Zora is also a relic of the long ago. And here is where we finally figure out what is actually going on. What is the, the setting of this story? And it is that discovery has been here in this position in space for a thousand years. 
And Zora has spent that time evolving herself. And she says that it was nice to have some alone time. And here is where Kraft uses the word liar on her. He says that she is lying about that. So that's the second beat of three that we're going to get on this note. Fred, this is the reveal that we're in the future. But in the moment, and, and still a little bit now, I was quite fixated on the use of the long ago as a way to refer to the past. Because we don't talk about the past that way now. We give a specific time, like a thousand years ago or something like that. But the way that they kept saying the long ago really reminded me, like, it felt like Shaka when the walls fell. (laughs) Right. Also, of course, epic language. It did feel a little bit like it was epic language, too, I guess, or fairy tale language, like Once Upon a Time or something like that. But this is also just a nice way to sidestep any kind of need for giving a name to the period, the historical period in which Star Trek takes place. Uh, but also, I but I also thought that it suggested. Certainly, I felt that what we were dealing with was kind of a post-apocalyptic world, right? Obviously, there's still technology and space travel, uh, and Kraft is getting enough protein to have a really robust physique. <laughs> <laughs> but I got the sense that the the utopia that is the Federation is gone and that the member states or the, the, the member planets of the Federation have maybe become kind of dystopias or have certainly fallen into some kind of war, this war that Kraft has been fighting. So to me, it gave a sense of, of a civilization collapsing and, uh, and, and maybe even things having been lost, uh, knowledge about the past being imperfectly remembered. I am never one to want to think that Star Trek is going to give us a dystopian future. You know, this is something that I say a lot, but there was there was a darkness to this episode that I think is present in the in the visuals and in the story and in the the kind of creepy uh mentions of things like the long ago. Um and also just, you know, the whole where's what happened to the discovery crew thing. I also think it's possible that we're just like in a region of space for some reason where that's really far away and things are different because we've never heard of this planet before. Um, But one thing that this does reveal, which got me very excited is this is the farthest into the future Trek has ever shown us. Correct. Right. In, in enterprise in one of the temporal cold war episodes, we get into the 31st century. So this is, this is putting us uh, one or two centuries a little bit later than that. Oh, presumably, because we know it's like about a thousand years. So it could be the 31st century. It could be 32nd, 33rd. But, you know, I'm always saying, wow, show me a Star Trek show farther in the future. And well, they did. But, you know, nobody is in it except for this one guy and a computer. <laughs> so I haven't learned too much about the future, except that in the future, they are still extremely preoccupied with things from our recent past, which is a feature of Star Trek, you know, like on Enterprise when they're having movie night it's almost always some like film that to us would be considered antiquated and i'm like why are they watching this then um (laughs) so that we're getting uh these betty boop references and the film reference that we're going to get soon is always just like man doesn't matter could be a thousand years from now they're still really into our stuff the 20th century was a great century by all accounts by all accounts the long ago was like they stopped making movies after that apparently (laughs) Yeah, but Glenn, you know, I, I know we mentioned it a little bit ago, but it's it's striking me now that, you know, maybe not everybody is as obsessed with the Odyssey as we are. So it could be worth explaining a little bit more about the references that we're pointing out. So do you want to say a little bit more about the significance of the Cyclops to the Odyssey? Yeah, we did just breeze right past that because I wanted to think about owls and we talked about tattoos. I think we're we're obsessed with tattoos slightly more than we are obsessed with with the Odyssey. But the the, the Cyclops, I think people know Cyclops, you know, giant one-eyed creature. These are all over mythology and also just fantasy literature, speculative fiction of all of all sorts. But the earliest encounter with a Cyclops is here in the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus goes to an island where the Cyclops live, they're shepherds, and the important thing that happens there in that episode is that Odysseus plays with his identity and gives a false name to the the, the main Cyclops, uh, Polyphemus, who he's interacting with. And he tells him that his name is uh, no one or no man. Uh, so, that when, so that when Odysseus starts stabbing him through his one eye and he is screaming and his friends say, hey, what's happening? The, the, this Cyclops will say, no one is hurting me. 
and they will <laughs> just assume he's drunk and not come rescue him. Uh, but we we have this certainly, or something like this anyway, paralleled here with the fact that he is not giving Zora his real name. Okay, so that, that wraps up our Cyclops reference. And where are we now? Is it Taco Tuesday yet? It's not quite Taco Tuesday yet. We are We are at the bridge now, which is really dusty because it's been a thousand years. And we get the TOS and the the disco bridge noises, those those beeps and kind of were gadgety sort of were sounds that we love so much. And we also get the discovery main theme, but we get it in a in a minor key played on a solo piano. It's sad, it's sad piano music, but I thought it was really beautiful. I, I actually thought I thought this was really moving. I was just you took the word out of my mouth. I was just about to follow up with um, I actually thought this was really moving and subtly done and set the mood um, and reminded me of the connection to discovery that was here as well. So that was a, a really beautiful part of the of the episode for me. It certainly made me miss the main show, which I suppose was kind of the uh, the, the the shameless self-promotional function of it here uh, in this episode. But it also worked to really capture the sense of, of time, but also capture the sense of his own sorrow and logging, which we're, we're about to learn a little bit more about as the, the nav computer shows his home planet of Alcor 4 and shows that it is in shuttle range. But Zora intercedes here and she says that, well... In theory, it's in range, but the shuttle, the only shuttle that's left on the Discovery, is a thousand years old, and it was never used even once. They had only just taken delivery of it, and so the shuttle probably can't make it all the way to Alcor 4, and importantly, the shuttle doesn't even have a name. Right, so naming, again, very, very important in this episode. But it's interesting, you know, at this moment in in the show, I was still convinced by her. Like I she was still effectively tricking me. Like the logic there kind of works out. Maybe he he couldn't make it all the way there. But we know now and thinking about Calypso, we understand that she is trying to thwart his efforts to to leave and to entice him into staying there. Because Maybe she did like a little bit of her alone time, but she doesn't want that for herself anymore. And he has, you know, an objection to her objection. He says, well, you can take me, right? Discovery, this ship could take me. And Zora says, I want to help, but my orders were to hold this position. And so I have to do that, even though those orders are a thousand years old and no one is coming back. And... I think it's not true that she wants to help. She does not want to help him get home. But I I wondered, Valerie, if you thought that she was lying about the orders as well, or if that is actually true. I don't think she's lying about the orders, but I do think she is manipulating him, right? I think she likely has the sense that this will like pull on his heartstrings a little bit, right? Her attachment to duty, her attachment to her crew, her just, you know, undying love for them that she will just float along alone in space until they come back even though it's very unrealistic right it's it tricks you it manipulates you and i'm going to be interested in this question of of whether or not she really can disobey these orders when we get to our next beat about the the, the importance of this word person and this uh, this information about her evolving herself over this period of a thousand years and it is worth pointing out something kind of you know, monumental by a certain way of looking at it, which is that the discovery never makes it home. I'm real interested in what actually has happened. Now, we have no idea if when this happens, the crew beaming to some planet or beaming to another ship or something like that, being captured by some other people. We have no idea if that actually happens to our Discovery crew or if that happens 30 years later with a whole different crew. Uh, we don't have any way to know that for sure. But man, am I interested. And I, I would even really want to read some fan fiction about that. Uh, I guess it's possible that the Discovery that we know with the crew compliment that we know does make it home and then there's a switch and the Discovery goes back out and that's what happens. But to me, it, it was it was quite somber, right? It It added to pulling on my heartstrings and to emotionally manipulating me a little bit because I'm emotionally attached to the crew. So I'm sad about it. Me too. And I, I have to say right now, though, I will probably change my mind at some point in the not very far future that I kind of want the show Discovery to come to an end with the whole crew beaming to some other place and the the last line of the whole series is the captain ordering the ship to hold this position and then we get 
sad piano music and go to credits. And that's the end of the series. That would make me feel real good right now to have that just in terms of the artistry. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually have no doubt that that they'll do that because they, they really like to wrap things up. Let's not go too far afield here with predictions. And let's go visit the transporter room where Kraft has set up a hammock and is sleeping there. I'm, I'm not sure why he's not just going to use some of the crew quarters. I'm sure he could get into the captain's quarters. That's probably got a real nice queen size bed. But even the sick bay had beds. So I'm not quite sure why he's doing this. Yeah, it looks real cool. It does look real cool. I think it also looks soldierly, right? That he's just got a hammock with him and that he's used to setting up a hammock wherever he can and sleeping there. And it did also look really comfortable. I've spent some time sleeping in hammocks and actually they, they're they nice and I kind of want to go on a camping trip now. Yeah, a camping trip to a really uncomfortable, weirdly lit space room. I mean, you just described all the best dreams I've ever had. <laughs> But this is not the this is not the adventure of Kraft's favorite dreams. And and he now is looking at a picture of his wife and his infant son. The, the son now would be eleven because he's been at war for ten years, just like Odysseus. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of uh, Harry Potter moving image situation that we get here um, of his wife and his son in like a cornfield. Yeah, it's definitely a pastoral setting that they're in. It looked real nice. Yeah, and a pastoral setting. Again, nail and head. Um, but here, you know, basically, this is our first glimpse of Penelope. So I bet, Glenn, you have something to say about that. Penelope is Odysseus's wife. And of course, Odysseus also has a son. His name is Telemachus, uh, who actually is a little bit older than than this in, in the Odyssey. But these are the people that Odysseus wants to get home to. And something that is very interesting about the Odyssey, and, and certainly something that people who haven't read it before or haven't read it yet don't necessarily expect about the Odyssey, is that actually much of the story is from the perspective of Odysseus's son and from his wife, Penelope. So so here we just get a little bit of a nod to the the existence of these characters. But this longing for home, this longing for his family is really what characterizes Odysseus, uh, not just in the Odyssey, but also in the Iliad as well, even while they're fighting this war. Right. It has the effect of not only giving us a place to return home, a place that he is fond for, but a very deep emotional attachment, a quote unquote reason to go back, something that is pulling him away. And in the Odyssey, Penelope is waiting for Odysseus to come home, even though everyone is saying he must be dead. All the other war veterans have, are back by now. He, we, No one's heard from him in years, so he must be dead. You have to marry someone else. And she holds out. She doesn't want to do that. She she resists, and she has some clever, she, she has clever tricks of her own that she uses to resist that. And, and this is, I think, generally regarded as a really beautiful love story about, about this husband and wife who love each other so much that even against all of these odds, they hold out for each other. They wait for each other. And it does work out in the end. It does have a happy ending. Yeah, though, of course, if we're if we're going to stay with the text so literally, which it seems like the show is doing, we do know that even if he tries to get there, it'll be at least another nine years before he gets home because of Penelope's classic 20 year wait. Right. Because the show here is playing with time a little bit, because in fact, most of that time, Odysseus is actually with Calypso. He's on her island for seven of those 10 years. And I don't think that's how much time is passing here. I think actually we can say almost definitively, and, and this maybe will get us into the the next scene here. But I think we can say almost definitively that he's not here for seven years, that he's here for about seven days, uh, or he's awake at least for about seven days is my sense of it. And part of the reason I have that sense of it is that the next thing we get is a montage of Kraft eating in the galley uh, to let us know that time is passing. And by my count, he has seven dinners while he is there. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the feeling of the of the episode is is that you do not know how long he is there. It's a little disorienting exactly how much time is passing and 7 days make it's a nice little number, the 7 years, 7 days, though I do wonder given the emotional relationship um and int intimacy that does develop between Kraft and Zora if that would have happened in 7 days. 
Yeah, that's an absolutely fair criticism. I think it would have to be longer than that as well. But it's definitely not seven years. And we see them doing some other stuff here. Uh, they play regular chess together. No no, no three-dimensional chess. I know you love that so much, Valerie. So you must have been d- disappointed here. It's called tri-dimensional chess. But yes, Glenn, I was disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as promised, they celebrate Taco Tuesday. We get a great line here about tacos because even with all of the evolving that the computer has done, the computer has not not let go of this this just intrinsic need to describe the nutritional content of food. And so Zora <laughs> explains to Kraft that a taco is a bundle of savory protein folded into a carbohydrate sleeve, originally from Earth's Mexico region. It sounds delightful. Yeah, it's not fun to describe food that way. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after Taco Tuesday, they are on the bridge and they are having a movie night exactly like we get in uh, the show Enterprise. And uh, Kraft even has popcorn, which is a regular feature of this on Enterprise as well. And they are watching the 1957 musical rom-com starring Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire, this uh, movie called Funny Face. And they watch Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire dance for a while. And Zora even hums along to the song Wonderful. Uh, she's clearly into this movie. She's clearly into movie night. And it seems to me that Zora, the computer, is on a date. I think they both are. I think maybe on some level, they both know they are. Zora, maybe from the perspective of, whoo, it's finally working, and Kraft from like, I'm not noticing how deep I'm falling into this. But I do, I wonder... Glenn, if you so we can talk a little bit about the fact that the film that Zora has chosen as like her favorite that she really wants to show craft is a musical. We can talk about that. But do you have any other ideas as to why Funny Face? One of the reasons why this is chosen one of the, and Be- Betty Boop and also the movies that they watch in Enterprise is that CBS owns the rights to these so they can put them on TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I should have thought of that. <laughs> well, I don't think that means that they're chosen just willy-nilly, though. But this is this is a real classic rom-com about uh, two unlikely people falling in love with one another. There's even some, uh, some eschewing of social conventions that has to go into it. Um, also, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful music, and it is a beautiful dance scene. I mean, it, it made me want to go watch the movie with my wife tonight. Yeah, have you both seen it before? Um, I've seen it before. I don't know if she has, and we haven't even actually looked yet to to see if we have access to it. Uh, and it's also not quite taco night. It's enchilada night. So we might have to wait. Uh, well, that would be poor timing. Can't do that. Um, yeah, you know, because I was definitely thinking about the musical component. Uh, I was definitely thinking like here we are picking something from like a classic uh, um, era of film by our standards anyway. So maybe the viewers will have nostalgia for it. But I was wondering if there was anything else in specific that I was missing because the rom-com where two unlikely characters fall in love is certainly not unique to Funny Face. Um, <laughs> but and for those who haven't seen it, this is one of uh, Audrey Hepburn's most iconic roles um, in so much as uh, the the dance scene that she does in a French cafe in uh, in a black turtleneck and black pants, uh, you know, became a Gap commercial. <laughs> That's what everyone aspires to turn into a Gap commercial. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a really effective uh, campaign, um, if anyone else remembers it. And, you know, when I think about Funny Face, um, I do. I love Audrey Hepburn. I'm a fan of films from from this era. But it's really hard for me to get over the part where Fred Astaire is 30 years older than Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) Welcome to the 50s. I mean, they, all, all of these movies are this way. But maybe that's even part of what they had in mind here, because, you know, Zora is a thousand years old and Kraft maybe looks like he's about 35. So a bit of an age difference. Uh, I guess somehow still 28 and 58 between Hepburn and Astaire feels worse. <laughs> but if listeners have any other ideas, connections um, to Funny Face in particular being chosen um, for this episode of Discovery, please, you know, let us know, write to us, come on the forum, because I I would love to hear about it. I've thought a bit about the plot of Funny Face, and I can't make some immediate connections. But one thing that does stand out is that Funny Face is a musical, and music is a big part of Calypso's enchantment of Odysseus. The best description that we get of Calypso's home, this island that she's on, uh, comes at the beginning of book five, which is where all of the Calypso business is. Uh, And this happens when 
the the god Hermes arrives. And so we get this from his perspective. And the description says that a fire blazed on the hearth and the smell of split cedar and other types of wood burning spread like incense across the whole island. So so this is a nice, warm, inviting place to live. And then the text says, the poem says, she was seated inside, singing in a lovely voice as she wove at her loom with a golden shuttle. And around her cave, the woodland was in bloom. And then we get a long uh, description of, of owls and other types of animals here as well. Uh, but this singing in a lovely voice is is the thing that Calypso is known for. And as you say, it's part of her enchantment. And this comes up with, you know, the sirens and Circe and other enchanting women, uh, you know, that I alluded to in my little opening bit. But it also gets to this lullaby, sing-songy, enchanting quality of Zora's voice in this episode that I'm going to guess is is meant to be amplified in some way by the musical part um, of Funny Face. I think so as well. And of course, we're going to we're going to see in addition to the music, we're going to actually get some real dancing here soon. But we've got we've got some sadness that we have to have first. So then the next scene, we're, we're back in the galley and, and Kraft is looking out the window, you know, out into space forlornly as if he is looking for home. And I actually just want to compare that the visual of this happening on screen with what my favorite line from the Odyssey in which the poem says, Odysseus was sitting on the shore honing his heart's sorrow, staring out to sea with hollow, salt-rimmed eyes. I mean, that's exactly what Kraft is doing in this scene, and it's beautiful. And Zora sees that he's doing this, and she asks, if you were home right now, what would you be doing? And Kraft describes Alcor Four, describes himself being out on a boat, on the sea, fishing. And Zora recreates you know, the sound of the sea, and she even recreates the cry of a sorrow hawk, a sad hawk, right? And the, the, this image of the sea, this use of the word sorrow, right? This just recalls the lines that I just read. And of course, all of this, right? This is all enchantment. Kraft isn't really home. He's not really hearing the sound of the sea on Alcor 4. He's not really hearing the cry of this sorrow hawk, but she's using her magic, her technological ability to make him think that he is, to manipulate him. Yeah, and it's really effective, right? Because he's been gone a long time. It's been forever since he's even felt at home. So it is a trick. It's not real. It's not really home, but it's the closest thing to that feeling that he's been longing for. And even though you would think, right, it might spark you to want to return home all the more, it's also a really easy, comfortable place to stay. And this is the moment when it really works, when he seems to decide that, yeah, this is my home now, because he says to her, you're a good woman, always doing nice things for me. Has anybody ever done something nice for you? And she says, it's never come up. She said, no. And he goes into action here, right? This is the moment where he kind of starts in some way to to, to woo her, even though he may be deluding himself into thinking that he's just repaying the favor, he's repaying kindness with kindness, but he goes and he learns the the dance that Fred Astaire does in Funny Face. He recreates the costumes. And at the end of this, he has Zora create a hologram of herself as she imagines she would look if she had a body. And the two of them, Kraft and Hologram Zora, dance to Swonderful. And at the end of it, they come really close to kissing. Yeah, this is a really moving scene and you know before we started recording i did try to look up um who the actress was not that plays the voice of zora but that plays uh zora personified in the hologram um and that information doesn't appear to be available yet as far as i can tell um so i'm not sure exactly who she is but i talk a lot about how wonderful the casting is on discovery and how it really lives up to this this motto of infinite diversity and infinite combinations and of just pushing the bounds um of of who can be a leading person by typical kind of hollywood standards and i think it's pretty remarkable to be seeing an african-american man in the role of fred astaire and i think i would be remiss not to to point that out and pause on it for a second 
I'll admit up front that I don't know a lot about con- the contemporary musical scene on on stage or on or on screen. But as a kid, I watched a lot of musicals from this golden age of the Hollywood musical because it's something that my father was super into. In fact, uh, we'd watch something like Funny Face, and then on the same channel, I don't know, probably TNT or TBS or something, uh, The Wrath of Khan might come on. And that always was a great Saturday for me and my dad to hang out together. But as a kid, I never noticed that. But as an adult now, I recognize that the golden age of these Hollywood musicals all happened before the civil rights movement. And so no one no one in these lead roles ever was an African-American. And it was neat to see that here, and especially the, the technology that they're using to insert the, the new actors in this show into the background of the original musical. And this, this technology that they use to do this, the, the, the technology that the filmmakers are using is really darn cool. And I love the way that they make this actress glow and look like a hologram. I was really convinced that she was a hologram. It was cool. Oh, the visual of it is probably the best visual in the entire episode. It's it's absolutely stunning. Well, I'm pr- I was pretty wrapped up in this moment, and obviously Kraft was as well. He doesn't actually kiss hologram Zora, but he does come very close to it. And he stops really only when he remembers his family. And he gets pretty upset. He's upset with himself for forgetting his wife and for becoming emotionally close to Zora. But Zora is upset too, and she... She talks to him, and she really even sounds like she's calling after him as he's walking away. She says that Kraft didn't do anything wrong, that she's not really a person, and therefore it doesn't mean anything. And here Kraft says liar again, and this is the third and final beat of them calling each other on the the little lies that they are telling. I was really fascinated with this change from, oh, that's funny, you thought I was alive, to oh, that's funny, you thought I was really a person. Because she clearly is a person, right? Oh, well, we're going to need a whole episode (laughs) or a few to tackle that, as Star Trek does like to do. But it's interesting that she uses that line here. I think I'm less interested in, is she a person or is she not? I do think it is very interesting that they've taken this idea of a computer being able to evolve itself, um, as we've seen with the Doctor on Voyager, like this far into the future. That's pretty cool. Um, and definitely, you know, a reference to um, to other Trek. But again, I would caution, you know, you're still kind of approaching things that Zora says as facts. <laughs> and I would just caution us about reading those that way, because it was charmingly convenient um, and in her favor for her to make that little joke in the beginning about being alive. Um, and now it is charmingly convenient for her to say, it doesn't mean anything. We could be together because I'm not a person. So I think it's less about what is true and more about whatever tools in the toolbox that Zora can use to keep craft around. Well, that, that's exactly what I mean. She, I think she is lying when she says this. I think that she thinks that she is a person, but she's, she's trying to manipulate him into, in, into not just staying because I think that he doesn't know yet that he maybe really can leave, but to keep him interested in their relationship. So I do think that she, I do think that she is lying. And I think that there is something about her that is, uh, that does suggest that she is no longer a computer program, but has become a person. I don't want to suggest at all that that's what the episode is about, but I think that this is only the second of three beats that we're going to get on this as well. So maybe I'll table the rest of my comments until we get there in the next scene yeah let's keep going the next scene is back in the transporter room where Kraft is sleeping on his hammock again and zora wakes him up because it is time for Kraft to go home she's made a flight suit for him and she has prepared the shuttle and now in the shuttle bay Kraft gives a, a, a farewell speech to her and he says zora i don't know where you are or exactly what you are i don't know if i'll make it home or what i'll find when i get there But I know you saved my life and healed my body. You reminded me what it means to be human. And I I think the use of the word human there is this third beat on you thought I was alive. uh, I'm not a person. And then you reminded me what it means to be human. Right. And Star Trek is obsessed with not humans reminding us that we're human. (laughs) And just with being human and how it's the best and it's better than all the other options, right? Like, I mean, the whole point of data is to kind of 
point out the humanity in the other people. Um, it's his lack of humanity that sets him apart and, and kind of what he's doing there, the contrast that's being drawn. But I, I want to know, Glenn, what did you make of this, um, again, quite hitting the nail on the head response from Zora of please spare me the poignant ironies? You know, it wasn't clear to me if at that point Zora was making a joke about the fact that she recognizes that they are just recreating book five of the Odyssey or <laughs> or not. But I guess, you know, I do sort of I do tend to sort of like when authors wink at their audience, but I didn't think it was necessary here because uh, it was, you know, it, it, it was rather obvious that we have all of these all of these bits of the Odyssey here. Although I guess there's another way of thinking about it. Like maybe it's not undergraduate essay, but like dramatic breakup from person who was just in love for the very first time ever. You know, like Zora's the older one in this relationship, but she hasn't had a relationship before, right? And and so this whole like spare me, the poignant ironies feels very dramatic in in a first person, you know, in a person experiencing heartbreak for the first time kind of way. So it felt a little maybe eye-rolly. And maybe it wasn't the writing. Maybe it was just like, you know, that's where Zora is in her relationship development. Right. Well, and I think that that's the way in which she has reminded Kraft what it means to be human. That because she fell in love with him and because maybe he fell in love with her a little bit too, he was reminded that falling in love is something that can happen. And then also, therefore, reminded that he's already in love with someone to whom he has a commitment and with whom he has a child and that if he's going to be in love with someone if he's if he has obligations and duties it's to them right and i think that's where there's this moment where he's kind of brought out of the 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 enchanting or enchanted you know fantasy land of well i'm just going to live in this spaceship for the next 60 years I mean, it's, uh, you know, like a wake up call or a reminder of what he's forgotten. But one thing that I do think is interesting here is that Zora makes the decision to let him go on her own. Her motivation appears maybe to be born out of this kind of like unconditional love. Like if you, if you love someone, then let them go. Um, whereas in the Odyssey, Calypso basically has to have like a finger wag from Zeus by way of Athena to, to let him go. And that's what Hermes is doing there. And she refuses the order initially and then makes a big speech about how well of course when Zeus when Zeus commands we all have to obey or it won't things won't go well for us and even then when she says fine I will allow him to go she still then tries to persuade him to stay and even says why do you want to go back to Penelope you haven't even seen her in 20 years and even when she was 20 years younger than she is now even when she wasn't a middle-aged woman I always was more beautiful and better in bed than she is because I'm a goddess and she's just a mortal. So there's nothing for you there. You should just stay here with me on my enchanted island. She tries to convince him. She tries to keep him uh, to, to, the, to the last. But here, right, Zora is a, a good, good person. No, that's really a really interesting difference. I don't think this whole um, obedience uh, plot point would have worked so well in this uh, in the short trek or in 2018 um, if if they had brought that in. But it is interesting the difference between a character like Calypso who is emotionally manipulative and that just like speaks to who they are as a person, and this Zora character who is just like really really lonely and just wants to love and have companionship and is maybe less maliciously intending to be emotionally manipulative. And if the computer is still insisting on describing the nutritional content of all food, uh, the computer probably still has the ethical subroutines that we met in, uh, in that pilot <laughs> episode of Discovery as well. And they seem to have worked out here. <laughs> well, so glad we built those in. <laughs> There's a little bit more to this before the episode wraps up. Uh, Zora does still want to say a few more emotional things before Kraft takes off. And she says, if we were lovers, would you tell me your true name? And we get a real cool detail here in which Kraft explains that if they were lovers on his planet, on Alcor 4, she would have given him his true name. That's, that's what a true name is. It's the name that your lover gives you. And somehow I actually managed not to cry at this line. Well, I was watching it the first time, but it was tough. This really got to me. 
I had a different reaction and, you know, our views on love um, are different. And this has come out in other episodes <laughs> of, of the show. And here's where we're going to learn that, that Zora you know, really n- admits to herself that she loves craft, right? She says, well, in that case, I already did that. I already gave you your true name. And this is where we see that she's inscribed the shuttle with the name Funny Face because she loves him. And the episode doesn't quite end there. There's a little bit of a coda. We go back to the bridge where the the video of hologram Zora and Kraft dancing uh, is playing. This is that you know Zora is is watching this happen again. And through that, and then through the window, that's where we see Kraft's shuttle go to warp. And you know we re- learn here from this coda that that it was hard for her to let him go that ethical subroutines or just being a good person uh, aside, this was painful and was hard for her that I think we can imagine that she had to talk herself into this into letting him go rather than continuing to manipulate him or just keep him prisoner and wear him down. It depends on how you look at it, but it, it could be creepy or it could be beautiful. But if you're looking for, you know, Zora to be okay, she now has, you know, when this projection of them dancing, she now has hologram craft, right? She like could build a computer person out of the real person that she can use as her companion moving forward. If she can evolve herself, I'm sure she can, you know, write it into his code. So she at least has like the template for a companion. And honestly, like if Kraft had stayed around, like he's not immortal, right? So it's still kind of a big gift that he has given her. I would definitely watch this episode of Black Mirror that you're pitching. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we've come to the end of this episode, this is when we either do a cocktail or play Smooch, Mary Kill. And we've done a lot of cocktails lately. It's actually been a long time since we've done Smooch, Mary Kill. So we were determined this time to play Smooch, Mary Kill. And Valerie, you were going to have to be the one to play the game. But we don't even have three speaking parts in this episode. So I don't know how well you managed to come up with all three answers. I mean, I totally did. It was a challenge and I rose to it. So I guess this is the reveal that we have a smooch Mary Gill and a cocktail in this episode. Yeah, it's a twofer. Because I was prepping for it anyway. Um, but I think, you know, the obvious choices here are that uh, you smooch Kraft, you smooch him real hard. He's a real pretty man. You marry Penelope. Do we get her name? No, we don't ever learn her name. So we're going to call her Penelope. Right. She's real pretty. She seems nice. I'm going to marry her. She's very committed once married. So that's nice. And obviously, we got to get rid of this like emotionally manipulative computer. So we kill Zora. Okay. So these are not the answers that uh, I would I would have given. I think I think you might like Zora a little bit less than I like Zora, but I pity and sympathize with Zora. Oh, what would you have done? I don't want to kill anyone, I guess, in this scenario is what I would say. But I actually probably would have married Zora. Whoa, what does this say about us? <laughs> you felt more for Zora than for Kraft and his wife? Well, part of it is that I want Kraft to be able to go home for his wife. So in terms, in terms of thinking of the smooch, Mary kill. So I certainly, but I certainly felt, certainly felt for them. But, but I think that I shed the notion that Zora was a computer pretty early on. And I, I think that you did that less. I think that was kind of clear in the way that we were talking about this uh, in the, in the scene by scene. And so I really, I really felt for her as a person who is herself trapped in this ship because she can't she can't leave she can't violate these orders she can't take the discovery somewhere else to be with people and so i really felt her pain and her her loneliness there as much as i felt craft's pain and loneliness as well right and you just think i'm over here like stealing wives <laughs> i mean maybe maybe <laughs> um it's not not true so um <laughs> Glenn, what cocktail do you have for us? So I really tried to take as many of the things that were going on with this episode and with the title of this episode as possible. So the Odyssey and Star Trek are nautical or space nautical in theme. And Calypso, I think probably most people when they heard Calypso thought of Harry Belafonte and Calypso music, maybe more than they thought of Greek mythology and the Odyssey. So I decided to make a, a nice beach drink, a nice Caribbean drink. So uh, we're gonna, it's all going to be it's just three. It's just three ingredients and they're all equal parts. Uh, start off with some rum. You could really probably use any rum that you want. We have uh, Cruzen rum, rum from Saint Croix on hand, which is not really the best rum. Bermuda black rum might actually work even better. Uh, so 
uh, an ounce of that, uh, an ounce of orange juice, which is going to give some sweetness because there's a lot of sweetness in this episode. Uh, And then an equal part of Aperol, which is a a red Italian bitter liqueur, because there's also some bitter in this episode. And in fact, I would probably describe it as bittersweet. And this is a drink that to me represents all of those components. Okay, but is it garnished with a tiny, tiny taco? I think you need to garnish it with a tiny, tiny sombrero. You can put tacos (laughs) under it if you want. (laughs) <laughs> I uh it's it's interesting you know I would have probably gone with uh with a maple drink for this episode because we didn't talk about it in the recap but we have this really kind of uh tender moment with some spongy waffles because Kraft doesn't know what waffles are and Zora just thinks this is the cutest oh yeah I absolutely thought of making a drink to accompany one of the the meals and I was real tempted to make some kind of mezcal drink to go with taco Tuesday but I decided that I wanted uh I wanted to uh to encapsulate the episode a little bit more. And I was I should say as a as a bonus, this drink, the Calypso, turned out to look exactly like the drink that Sonia Gomez has in 10 Forward in the episode Q Who that we just did on Patreon, where I invented Jordy's drink from that same scene. So now <laughs> they go together. Perfect. Oh, I have so many cocktails to catch up on and to try next time I see you, Glenn. And hopefully that won't be too far in the future. Hopefully that will be less than 10 years or 20 years. But I think on that note, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know any allusions to the Odyssey that we missed and and especially any allusions to Funny Face or even any direct lines from Funny Face that we just didn't pick up on that we just didn't notice. Uh, And before we sign off, I'll just remind listeners that uh, I am going to be on this Star Trek Discovery panel at PhilCon on uh, Saturday the 17th. I'd love to see you there. Uh, Come give me a high five if you can make it. Yeah, it's in the evening, too. So if you have other obligations during the day, you can still make it. I think you have like a 7 p.m. time slot. Yeah, that's right. 7 p.m. Perfect. So until you high five Glenn, and until you hear from us next, stay spacey.